it was disconcerting to be validated for something that I believed 22 years ago um, and, and that uh, I got a lot of other people to believe 22 years ago, including Doubleday to the tune of $2 million and Disney to the tune of a million and New Line to the tune of a million plus and so on. Uh, and then it didn't happen. And uh, suddenly, all these years later, it happens and people go, you, you must feel good to be corroborated. And I, I said, yes, I do. But the truth is, it taught me the most important lesson of all, which uh, I wrote into an essay called The Waiting Room. Uh, if I had been waiting for The Meg to happen, or for any movie that I started 20 years ago to happen, uh, I probably would be miserable, if not suicidal. But um, what you do in the waiting room is you do something else. That, that's how you manage your time. When, when you're waiting for something, uh, that can be annoying and, and a burden. And uh, the, what you have to do is other things. So what I did was 50 other things. As a result, 30 movies have happened and hundreds of books and a new publishing company and lots of other things. And yes, it's satisfying to see that the world uh, endorses what Steve Alton and I believed in 22 years ago, that this was you know, a hugely popular subject for a story. And, and all the way along, brave people, especially Bill Avery, who brought it home, uh, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, et cetera, other producers, um, they made it happen too. But it just, I guess what it shows among other things is that don't waste time hoping for something to happen. Do your work and then put it out in the world and let the world take care of it. That's one thing. And then uh, part of it is to trust your, the work that happened. When you, know, when you create this baby, the Meg in this case, if it's a good baby, it will survive and it will show its muscles when the time comes. Uh, maybe it's been in hiding for all these years, but suddenly it comes out and everybody knows it. That's great. But what that tells the artist, I think, is to focus on what's at hand, what's in your workshop right now and do it well. And then don't worry about things you can't control. Focus on what you can control. And I guess that's my main feeling about it, is that we did a lot of work on the Meg at the beginning. We created its shape and it finally came out and it did great. And am I surprised? No, I'm pleased. Um, but I'm not surprised because I always believed it. But I am so glad I didn't hang my own personal psychology on it because if I had done that, I'd been, you know, locked up by now. Like, like, like myself, Steve went on to write eight more books on different subjects too um, and built a, another career around uh, his talent. And he'll continue doing that. He's learned that lesson too, that uh, it's, was it disappointing that it didn't come out back then? Well, it felt like it at the time, but in retrospect, things are meant to be. And I always say to, to writers that I manage that uh, every project has its own clock, and the only problem is you can't see the clock. So what you do is you put in the works the best you can, and then you screw the screw dry, you know, the screws on the cover and send it out into the world and wish it well and turn to your next project. 
which hopefully you've done before you finish this what project. And uh, that's, what, that's what the creator does. They keep working on new projects. So this world didn't turn out perfectly. God creates another world. Uh, maybe it's better. What he was doing was creating something that no one else could create. And he told me that he spent, he wrote every day for 10 years before he wrote a single line, a single word that was uniquely his. And then one day he sat down and he wrote the words, the lake. And he wrote a short story based on the time when he was a little boy, when he was eight years old, he and a little girlfriend who was seven went swimming in Lake Michigan and he came out and she never did. She drowned. And it was a story about her coming back as a ghost. And he told me that when he finished the story, tears were streaming down his face and he knew he'd written something that no one else could have written. It came specifically from his experience and his soul. And he said it took, a, it, and it took another two years of writing every day before he could write something again that was uniquely his. And then he got to where he could do it again and again and again. And he became Ray Bradbury because he was determined to do that. And so I thought that was a great lesson to say, okay, what are you creating? What, what can you create that isn't something that's just an imitation of what others are doing, but that's unique to you, that no one else could have created, that you create something fresh in the world that's truthful and meaningful, and, uh, and then you know you've done something worth doing. So that's, that's been a great inspiration to me. I love my agent. I think he's the best agent in the world. I'm repped rep at WME. There's another agent WME who I think is the second best agent in the world. Her name is Adriana Albergetti. And she said something once that I think is so important for writers to hear. She said that some writers get it and some writers don't get it. And the writers who get it are all working. And the writers who don't get it, most of them aren't working. And so as an agent, she just wants to work with writers who get it. And this is what it is. A lot of writers think that, you know, to write a script that changes your life, to write a script that gets you your first job or to get Ridley Scott to hire you or to get a show, whatever it is you're aspiring to, you have a career, but you're trying to take it to the next level. They think it's about writing the, having the right script at the right time at the right place. That's not it. That's a mistake. That surrenders all control and power to the universe. The reality is your job is to think in six script cycles. And you have to be writing the right kinds of scripts, pitch perfect, authentic. We talked about that earlier. And assuming you trained yourself up to be able to do that. You need to write six of those every two years. And the reason is, if you write six of these pitch perfect, authentic scripts, one of them is going to go out to the marketplace and just fizzle and you'll never know why. And then um, two or three of them will go out and they'll start to get some traction, but then something will happen and derail it. And then there'll be one or two that's absolutely going to happen. You have the director attached, you have the stars, there's a bidding war, there's no way it's not going to happen, and something at the very last second is going to derail it. And one of the six will actually go the distance and sell, or it'll be that script that gets you the next three or four years of getting staffed on show. There'll be one of those six scripts that will just catch lightning in a bottle. One of those six. You don't know which one it'll be. So if you're not working right now, you ought to be writing three or four of these scripts a year because you're thinking in six script cycles. So any one script goes out and ultimately doesn't do what you need to do. You don't feel like a victim. That's one of six. This is the key. If you are working, 
you have two jobs now. You have your day job and your weekend night job. So if your day job is a feature assignment for Ridley Scott, or your day job is you just got staffed on Jane the Virgin, one of my students, just, that's why I keep saying just got staffed. She's very excited. Um, you have to do everything, you have to, that, you have to excel at that job. But then at nights or weekends, you gotta be writing pitch perfect authentic scripts. Um, and maybe you're not writing three or four a year, maybe you're writing two a year because, but you don't stop writing these scripts and creating these scripts because one of these scripts is gonna be the thing that takes your career to the next level. And so the writers that don't get it is, I'm working, I'm making money, I've made it. Plus I'm busy, it's like, I have a family, I'm writing, there's no other time. And I get that. But the reality is the writers that get it, even though they're working, they're still always creating these new material and they think about it in six script cycles. And so a lot of times agents drop the writers who aren't doing that. And you know, I get it because like when I was a working studio writer, I wasn't continuing to write these scripts. I was just doing my studio assignment work and I was making good money and I was really, I was just too busy. I didn't want to do that. My agent kept telling me to do this. I didn't. And he said, at some point your writing career is going to end badly. Um, and I worked nonstop for 11 years, but I was a working writer, but I never became an A-list writer. And the only way I could have become an A-list writer is to keep writing these scripts. So there was another writer, Eric Singer, who wrote a script and he started getting all these studio assignments and he was making a lot of money, but he kept writing on his own time, these pitch perfect authentic script year after year after year. And eventually one of them hit and it was uh, American Hustle. And so he's now suddenly a huge writer. I know the guys that wrote the Nick, same thing, you know, they're, they're staff writers and they were making really good money, but they were writing stuff that they really believed in and the Nick was one of them and that's uh, and that script just took them to a whole other level. Um, Alan Ball with American Beauty, we could go on and on and on. So often agents drop writers who might be really great writers, but they don't get it. They don't keep creating this new absolute. So it's either they don't keep creating material or they're not creating the right kind of material. It's not good enough. I have a lot of friends who are agents and if you keep creating the right kind of content, even when you're working and, and the content's amazing and you play well with others, it's very unlikely they're going to drop you because that's exactly the kind of person they want to represent. And in that case, if they drop you, it, it could be a conflict with their client. It could be a lot of things that have nothing to do with you. But if you're not doing all of those things, and an agent drops you, then you have to look in the mirror. I can go back to Sean Ryan again, the one who um, was so promising and he got a job on a sitcom as soon as he came to LA and then he didn't work for six years. And what he did is he wrote, and I think that he wrote about 14 spec scripts. And what happened is, his scripts were all good, but nothing was getting him traction. And he asked his manager, he said to his manager, send me an example of a script that is getting somebody work. And his manager sent over the script that had the most buzz at the time. And Sean compared it page to page and said, he'd have, 
you know, three things on a page that were really good. But this one, the one that got the buzz, every single beat was perfect. And when he realized that he had not been hitting the mark, he started to write and hit the mark. And in not too long of a time, he got hired on a show and that show led to another show and then he got, um, he, he developed the shield. So you just have to keep working. I wouldn't really call it early success. I, I, it was, I don't even view it that way. I view it as a, six years of no one wanting my stuff. And it was, you know, some random person who was very kind, was interested in the script, but it wasn't as if it was all of a sudden, I made it and I, it's happening now. So it really was uh, a six, seven year journey to selling my first project, um, which was Recount. And why I didn't give up, I think, is because I had something to say. And I loved writing these scripts and they were important to me and I, I loved working on stories. Um, and it just was artistically extremely fulfilling where my acting career was very uh, frustrating and sometimes I and I worked I did really some worked on some terrific shows that I'm really proud of but I wasn't actually getting to act very much so even when you're working um, you know I would do episodes of Gilmore Girls and I would do four episodes a season and I would work on it a day or two and that would be one of my only jobs for six months so it's really about seven days on set over a six-month period so what am I doing the rest of the time I'm auditioning and trying to get new jobs but that's a, an hour a day maybe so really it was it was a, a creative outlet for me of taking my creative energy and putting it into something where I could actually just go do it whereas an actor you have to be picked to go do it and then you rarely get picked so I just found it fulfilling but I also um, was getting rejected left and right um, script after script and agents, managers, production company, everyone didn't want my work for six, seven years. And I think uh, I got to a point where I asked myself, this is not going well. <laughs> what, are you, what do you want from this? What, what are you doing? And I sort of, I asked myself, would I, and it's one of the key questions in the movie, would I do this for the rest of my life if I got nothing in return? And I thought, yeah, I would. And then I just kept writing. And then eventually, it wasn't as if six months later, cracked the champagne, it was maybe three years later that I sold Recount as a pitch uh, to HBO and then just kind of went on from there. But there was a certain peace in knowing that it wasn't about, um, it wasn't about selling something or success, even though I really wanted it. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a kumbaya moment, but there was a peace in knowing that, um, well, whatever happens, you just keep writing. So just keep writing, and that's what I did. When Jeffrey and I were starting, we, we took a slightly academic view one day and said, what's your prediction about the approach they're gonna take? Are they gonna go more for story, or are they gonna go more for character? And we found out the answer is neither. They went for conflict. And so if you were to give us a premise to develop, the very first step we would take is, okay, whatever the premise is, where do we get conflict out of it? Okay. If there are two characters involved, how can we make them butt heads to do something? Because everything would come out of that. Writers, as one example, 
Um, I get query letters every day, blind query letters. Dear so-and-so, it could be my name, it could be creative executive, it could be my name misspelled, it could be anything. Dear so-and-so, log line, short description, you know, can I send you a script? I'll sign a release, sign John. That's what I get repeatedly all day long in my inbox. There is not one lick of research. There is not one lick of anything personal, like why is this the writer, the only writer who could have written this story? Why was it so compelling that they chose this out of all the stories in one's imagination? Why did they choose to send it to me? Now, I don't want to receive the agony and the ecstasy as a letter, but something, a drop, a kernel, something that stands out and makes them, makes me think, makes me react, makes me wonder about this. Um, but they don't. I can promise you not even 1% do what I'm describing. So this is what writers learn from other writers. It could be actors learning from other actors, etc. They learn the habitual, tried and true, day-to-day -day protocol, which is usually very unsuccessful. The, the ROI, the return on investment in sending blind query letters is gonna be horribly frustrating. If you're a business, you'd be bankrupt. So why do it? You do it because this is what other people are doing. You need to associate with, with more successful people. And you need to think about it differently. If you were a fashion designer and you took that approach, you focus on your craft, focus on your craft, focus on your craft and send out letters saying, here's my designs, aren't I great? You'd never have a brand. You have to think in terms of business. You have to think in terms of um, what, what more could I do that others aren't doing as opposed to what they are doing? How do I stand out? Se separating yourself out from the herd is definitely the name of the game. And anyone who's invested all that blood, blood sweat and tears, that sort of soul equity, investing all that time writing 120 or 10 pages, whatever, of, of story and rewriting it till it's just so that they want to share their wares with the world. Now they're so proud of this. They should, they should invest a like amount of time in figuring out how to market and how to be a business person and how to reach out to people, how to do things differently than all their peers. Like that's a great measurement. Am I doing what everyone else is doing or am I being somehow putting myself out into the world and speaking of myself to the right people in ways that matter? A common notion, particularly about action heroes. The notion was always in the past that when you have an action hero, or especially a superhero, that you want a character who begins as a good person, an upstanding moral paragon, and remains that way throughout the entire story. But about 10 years ago, Hollywood discovered that that's not the best way to tell a superhero story. That's one of those examples of conventional wisdom. That's not so. What we care about is to see a character overcome a deep weakness. Now, the audience thinks that the story is all about the hero achieving his goal, right? Because then we've got success, and that's important. And in most stories, the hero will accomplish his goal by the end of the story. But that is not what the audience is most interested in. They can't tell you this 
But we know from lots of experience, hundreds of years of storytelling, that the, case, the, the real fact is not does the hero accomplish the goal, but does the hero overcome the great weakness? Because that's what makes us care about that character. We see them in pain. We see them in trouble. Right? If they're already successful, if they're already a good, and in some cases, a perfect person, where, where do they go? Right? There's nothing for them to overcome. So that's why it's so important that we show in the very opening pages of our script the great internal weakness of our character. Now, we may also want to give them qualities that are likable qualities uh, that the audience can also hook on to. But those are not nearly as important as establishing the weakness up front in the story. I'll never forget when I was a studio executive, uh, there was a certain circumstance where this happened, where we had the network, the studio, and the showrunners and the writer on the phone. And the writer was so defensive to the network notes. And it was my job to go to the writer and say, you need to really hear the note, understand the note, and then your pat best response that isn't going to put somebody on the defense or isolate someone is I'll take a look at it. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. That helps to, it, first of all, it helps, it's positive on the writer. It's saying that they're open. It's not saying they agree with the note, but it's saying they're open to take a look at it. And that's all people want to know. What I think the biggest thing writers have to think about when it comes to receiving notes on their script is even if they don't agree with the note at face value, they have to understand there might be a note under the note. And the note they need to make to themselves is something isn't working. And I have to figure out how to make it work. Because if this person who knows story is not getting it, then there's something going on in my process that isn't working. And just be open to that. I mean, the gift with writing, what I say to writers, is you have to recognize, first of all, the, what is, the blank page is the only thing that is between them and a writing career. And how they fill that page is what makes the difference. So they can rewrite anything. Like that's why I say to writers, I cannot tell you, it was my job, how many showrunners I had to talk off the ledge after they heard notes. And after they heard notes from the studio or the owner of the company or that I had to be the peacemaker. And I had to really help them to see, all right, at first, I think the writer's mind may go, oh my God, there's a total page one rewrite. Very often it's not. All it is, is really thinking about the note, understanding the note, 
And then if they're open to it, what they, what I've seen, the best writer for me knows how to make the note and go beyond the note. And that takes openness, you know, that takes advanced ability to really know, all right, well, I'm going to make that note there and therefore that's going to affect a later moment. So I'm going to change that later moment so that it links with what I just changed and they know how to do that. I think probably the biggest wall note is saying you're wrong. I don't agree. I think that is that shows lack of openness and accessibility and desire to make the story better. So I, I think, you know, when writers will or they'll say, I don't get it. And then the executive or or the story consultant will go through it again. And and I think like this is where I think it comes to the person giving the note there's also a tremendous responsibility. I, I am definitely a believer that if you're gonna give a note, give an example, show them what you mean so that they understand the note. So, I mean, there are many consultants who will say, I don't think that's my job. I'm not the writer, they're the writer. I am a believer. I come from the studio executive perspective where clarity is key in the outcome of the story. So if you're going to give a note and give an example of why it's not working or what you mean by it, then you're going to have a stronger chance of getting the outcome that you want. It's a funny thing, but the thing that most affected me uh, was a, a script doctor, a very good script doctor that I had. And, and, uh, and there was a script I'd written. I mean, it was one of my favorite scripts, ultimately. But, but she said, this is brilliant. I absolutely love it. Now, here's the notes. <laughs> and, and, but, but the fact that she said that I was brilliant and that she loved it, I thought, well, what the heck with a few notes? I'm brilliant and I love it. So I think, you know, crazy flattery, you know, I realize sort of the, the weight of, of allowing somebody to be, feel special and be special with crazy flattery that all those notes seemed like nothing. So, you know, one of the biggest, biggest pieces of advice was that, hey, you know, what you're doing has super value, now here's the work. And just going on that thing where I was allowed to have super value at the top of the journey um, really got me through as though it was nothing, those notes. For character, um, and, I, and I talk about this in, in my Pixar um, seminar, so because they, masters of this, um, you know, they, they tell stories about toys, about monsters, about bugs, about uh, robots, right? You know, fish, um, rat. They make you care and connect with those characters. So there's, there's a whole bunch of techniques and, and you can see what they do and you can know what the t techniques are. Um, uh, for me, it's like there's three, three things that you do that, I, that you do is, is make, us, make us feel sorry for that character. So they, there's little moments where you can, you can create a moment in the story where a character is unjustly abused or uh, unjustly mistreated or insulted or uh, betrayed or neglected. 
and so it, it, it could be any character. Um, and if that moment is there, you're going to feel sorry for that character. At that moment, it takes an instant. So that's one. If you show that they're like us, if you show their humanity, for example, you show that they care about something other than themselves, that's another technique. So uh, there's a moment in um, the movie um, Leon the Professional, which is about a, a, a hitman, right? And it opens with him doing a hit and he kills people. You don't know if he's good or bad, but he goes home and he takes care of a plant, right? And that right away you say, oh, well, he cares about a plant. So he's, he's okay. He's human. The other uh, part uh, is uh, admiration. So this is like any, any kind of, you know, if you're dating somebody or you're trying to find somebody who's a good match for you, there's that list of, list of things that you like in a person that's admir admirable traits. So if somebody who's funny, who's responsible, who's courageous, there's a whole list of things you can add to a character to make us say, oh, well, you know, I admire this. Usually they're like the best at what they do. They're like the best you know, the best ad executive or the best agent or the best cop or the best driver. Um, they're courageous. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. I, mean, I have a whole, the list, the list is all in, in the book. There's all these lists of things you can do. Uh, but if you do these three things, and I, so when I show clips of the, um, of the moment you meet the character, and it's usually like a three-minute scene, you can see all these things being applied in like three minutes. There's like, you know, the, the opening of Wally after he's done with the garbage and he comes to his, to his little house, it's a three-minute scene, and there's about 20 of these techniques done. This is how you connect with that character in one scene emotionally. Um, I also show a clip of, a, of, a, of an ad, a commercial. It's a one-minute thing uh, about a lamp. With the, it's, it's a great ad for IKEA, award-winning commercial, uh, where they make you care emotionally for the lamp. Right, and the and the the joke about it is that the guy comes on and says, uh, you know, you probably had feeling for these lamps. That that's because you're crazy. The lamp has it's only a lamp. It's you know, and the new one is better. You know, the new lamp to replace it. So, but anyway, but it's great. It's amazing once you once you know those techniques, and then you see them in action. You go, oh my god, you know, and I and I kind of always feel I always give this caveat with uh, to my students and to anybody who hears me speak that if you love stories, if you love films. Um, and you don't want me to destroy the illusion, uh, do not listen to me because I'm, I feel like I'm one of the magicians who give you the trick of how it's done and you, then you see the trick and it's not the same anymore. So um, I always feel bad about that because, you know, once you know the techniques and you see a film, you're going to see them everywhere all the time and it's going to kind of ruin it for you. So just w fair warning right there that, uh, you know, those are, those are, this is how we do it and that creates that effect, you know. It's not an audience's or a reader's job to feel something. Hmm. That's something you have to elicit. So it means you haven't created sufficient conflict in your story to elicit emotion, or you haven't created a premise, a concept of a story, you haven't structured it in such a way that that conflict makes any sense, or it can be emotionally involving because you've given the reader nothing to root for, or you haven't created empathy with the hero, or whatever it might be. But it's your job to elicit emotion. The emotion has to come naturally from the reader and audience because of what, they're, what you've done. Um, they have to be participating in the story you've created. That's why, for example, empathy is so important for the hero, for, for you to create for your hero. Because a story is a participatory experience. 
for the audience or the listener or the reader. We become that character. We want to experience the emotion as they do. It's not, we don't go to the movies because it's interesting to watch people do things. It's emotional for us to get to do them. We become Jason Bourne. We become Rose as she falls in love with Jack and is on the Titanic. We become um, uh, the woman who, the astronaut who's out in space in gravity. We are a part of it. We're participating in the action and the events of that story. But we have no basis, no way to get into the story if we don't, on a subconscious level, become the hero of that story. And that's what the empathy and identification you create at the beginning is going to do. So if you've created a story with an empathetic hero, so we participate, given them a clear goal, and created enough logical, believable obstacles to overcome, then the emotion will grow organically out of your audience because they're in it and you've created the conflict that will do that. To me, all roads lead to the outer motivation. And so if all you're doing is stringing together obstacles to overcome, and there's a very similar mistake, and that is people who think comedy is one funny thing after another happening. That's not what, that's not what a story is. A story is the sequence of events experienced by a hero who's pursuing a very specific goal. So if you're just throwing one obstacle after another, but we don't care about the hero, or the hero, it's not clear why the hero is doing this, or what they're trying to achieve, or if those obstacles are illogical, or if the pace of the story lags, or if everything is at a very high level of emotion and you're not creating sort of peaks and valleys to the emotional level, so you have big moments and quiet moments, and moments of connection and moments of separation and so on, there are all those things you've got to do in addition to throwing a bunch of, you know, car chases and fight scenes up on the screen, which many people have tried and those movies don't succeed. If, if it's just car chases and fight scenes, it's just, you know, it's just a series of videos really, but it's not a story or a movie that are people are going to be involved in. Well, it has to alternate, yeah. Alternate. It's, it's not a resting point as if you stay there forever, but you don't, it's like in a comedy, you don't want joke, 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 joke. There's got to be a serious moment or two. And, and look at any great comedy, look at even any decent comedy, and there's going to be something very funny, but then there's going to be something touching or sad or romantic or there's going to be a deeper connection between the characters, or there's going to be something more exciting, or there's going to be something softer. You want to vary the peaks and valleys, the emotional level and, and pitch of the story as we go steadily toward the finish line that the hero is trying to reach. So the obstacles need to get bigger, they need to come closer together as it moves forward so the pace will accelerate. But if there's only obstacles, one right after the other, with no chance to catch our breath, no chance to anticipate what might be coming, no chance to explain what's going on, and no chance to get closer or deeper into the characters, it's going to be a very, very shallow story with very limited emotional involvement or appeal. My process evolves every time I do another job. I realize how much I didn't know in my prior job. So it's, it's um, I'm somebody who reads pretty much every trick 
every screenwriting book, every uh, script that I can get my hands on, and I'm constantly trying to evolve as a craftsman. Um, I also am fortunate enough in this job to surround myself with really talented people, and 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 um, you learn a lot from other writers. Like there were writers on on Man in the High Castle who won Emmys, or you know Martin Scorsese's best friend is another one. Like like you you want to really kind of learn from from the people around you, and that just makes you better. So I can't say that I have any set process, uh, although right now, as I'm developing something, I have to say I'm a big fan of the John Truby, um, John Truby stuff. I think he, he kind of hits a sweet spot for me. Um, but, you know, I've taken them all. I've taken McKee. I've taken everyone. I, I, I'm one of these guys who it, likes to learn new stuff about the craft, and I figure if I can learn something from... Uh, any book, if I get one thing out of it, makes me a better writer. That's kind of, uh, that, I'm, I'm all for it. So, Just being able to, to recognize your deficiencies. And for me, you know, when I read a great script and I go, oh my gosh, you know, this is a great script. It, I get really excited about it. What are they doing that I'm not doing? Like, what can I learn from what this writer did? Um, and so I think just constantly learning, you know, and constantly reading and constantly researching and having that in the back of your mind all the time that you want to get better, um, you'll just gravitate towards things that make you better. Um, instead of finding that comfortable place where you know, you know you're good at writing this, so I'm just gonna write this over and over. I think forcing yourself to stretch. And because once you do that, again, it's, it's a great feeling. Um, you know, when you've written something good and you've done something you haven't done before, you, then you have something that you feel really proud of. You can learn from everyone, and that's the thing. There's so many people who, I think people just want to feel validated so badly that they get to a place where they're like, I'm the expert, and everyone should just be listening to what I have to say about this. And that's, it's kind of crazy because, yeah, you may have put your 10,000 hours and you may be very good at what you do, but you can learn something from everything that you read, even learning what not to do. But even in, in really bad scripts, you'll find these little moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, that was really well conveyed. Or, you know, um, so just being open to those things and learning from other people because people are constantly adding to this body of of work that exists in the world. And there's so much for you to be able to read out there. Just, you know, be open to what other people are doing. I, but then again, you have to love reading. So many writers don't love reading. So, you know, read, 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 and see what other people are doing. A lot of people want to start writing without ever having read a script. And I just, I don't understand it. Probably the most important perspective has been to see it as something I'm always learning and I'm always growing and that that's okay. It's not like I'm supposed to know it all and be perfect at it and the things that I write are gonna just be great automatically and others are gonna love them. To see it more as it's an ongoing quest of kind of a self-development, self-education. I'm learning with everything that I write what works better and and, and not as good so that it's like uh, it's like this, this journey of development that you sort of like are going to enjoy the journey as opposed to I have to get to a certain place, which it's easy to feel that way because the world works that way where I have to get the agent, I have to get the sale, I have to get something produced, I have to raise the money and make my movie. Like there's all these goals we might have in the world and a lot of times they're out of our control. And if you focus only on those goals, like what I can get, what I can achieve instead of what can I express? 
how can I just do what I decide I want to do, which is be a writer and be learning and growing and find some satisfaction in that journey? Because when you turn it into, there have to be these quantifiable results in terms of money or others' reactions or whatever, then you're putting all your power in this thing that may or may not ever happen, that you can't for sure make happen no matter what you do. So I think that attitude, it might seem counterproductive because it's like, well, to be successful, you want to, you know, professional, you want to focus on the professional goals, right? Well, you you do to some extent and you are open to feedback and you are list, you, know, you are educating yourself. I didn't say just go in a hole and just do what you want to do and never and shut the outside world out. I'm saying engage with the world with feedback, with education, with trying to understand and get better so it's growth, but making it a positive growth for yourself that is about making me better and making my writing better, not making my results better. Because when you focus on how do I give more, how do I write something that's really gonna impact people more, how do I do that? How do I figure out how to do it? How do I get better at it? You're then about giving to other people and you will achieve success, I believe, more when you succeed at giving more you will get more automatically as opposed to how do I get the success? How do I get the breaks? How do I get the right person to read it? How do I get people to like it? It's more how do I create something so wonderful that people will just automatically like it? I'm not even concerning myself with that. So it's like taking the power into your own hands and being about how you can improve your stuff and yourself as a writer Having that approach, I think, is a is a stronger, healthier approach that's going to lead to success more than if you do it the other way. But the number one reason why you are not making it is the material is not yet good enough. Because you if you're not, especially if you're not reading, you know, that reading the stuff that's out there, you have no way of knowing how good good has to be in order to get noticed. And coming in, you have to be better than most of the people who are now making a living at it in order to get noticed, even. But the contests offer, you know, the, the, when I was talking about re-objectification, the contests offer a concrete way to do that. Work on it and work on it and work on it until you've got something you're ready to test. But now, Pick your contests carefully. The first time you try it out, pick smaller contests, you know, more, more fringy. I mean, do your research. They should be decent, upstanding contests and, and so forth. Try it out. Try it out. Did you make the quarterfinals or were you swept away you know, in, in, in the first pass-through? Okay, if that happens, you have learned something. It's not ready. And you keep working on it, and you keep working on it. And finally, when you, know, you get to the mid-level ranks, and let's say it gets your, your script gets to the quarterfinals, okay, but it did not make the top 10 or top 15, fine. You've learned something more. Go back, take a vacation for a couple of weeks, try not to think about it, then read it again, make more notes, and go back to work on it. And it is a way to, that's the thing, see, what, what, what a lot of neophyte screenwriters, new screenwriters don't do or don't pursue, which is you have got to be, as a writer 
as a craftsperson, you must be relentless in your goal of, of creating quality material. Um, for instance, I'll give you for instance, and maybe that'll sort of. Um, I'm working with uh, a young lady right now who was one of our grad students a few years, a couple, two, three years ago. Uh, she's been my assistant, class assistant, and stuff like that, so we know each other pretty well. She took her thesis screenplay from, I don't know, three years ago, and I read it, and I told her, you got a great idea here. You know, you really do. I believe in this idea. And we had conversations about, you know, there's no such thing as a bad screenplay, only an unfinished one and all that. <sighs> And I gave her some pointers and, you know, scribbled things on the pages, and she went back and she wrote it again. This is a feature film. And I looked at it, and I, you know, this is better. This is a little better. And I went through, I had the, you know, the sample editing and scribble, scribble, and all this kind of stuff. And then she takes it, and she comes back, and it's a little bit better. She has been through that process, with, well, in this case with me, uh, oh, it, it must be six times now. I mean, years have passed. I mean, that was she, this, she, she had a draft of this when she went up for her thesis three years ago, right? But I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm reading it once again. I'll probably be looking at it again this weekend. She is so close, so close. What I would really like, to, I kept telling her, keep track of, don't lose your draft of your, of your first draft. Don't lose a copy of your first draft. Because a day is coming, I would like to have that in my hand and your final draft and put that together in a binder and use this in class. Have people read the first draft, and now read the last draft. And that, I believe, could be a wonderful, wonderful exploration of teaching and screenwriting because this has become viable. She is now close to having a sh an entirely shootable, casting, really good social commentary screenplay. What changed? In those six drafts, over the three years or however many? Craft. Craft. Her mastery of, 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 I mean, what most of them do is they write what they mean. When they come to dialogue, people just blurt it out, and it's called on-the-nose dialogue. Uh, that's one of the things you teach. Stop it. <laughs> people do not talk like that. People talk around what they mean. Uh, not that there can't be confrontation and stuff like that under certain emotional circumstances, yes, but it was dialogue and less is more <clears throat> in terms of the amount of dialogue. In description, it was about the use of language and vocabulary in description using irrelevant words, the, and, there. There's a whole list of, there's the nine most utterly useless words. I, I got it back there on a sheet I pass out sometimes. Um, all that is is filler. All that does is slow the reader down. It is developing a style in the way you describe and, and offer exposition and description in, in scene with scene heading slug lines and then what we're looking at and stuff like that drawing people in, where you put things, the plot, building the plot in an ever better way. You can do more here. You can do more here. That's what, what's been going on for all those years. Most overrated part of the screenplay equation is the idea. Ideas are really pretty useless and worthless. 
Um, uh, again, uh, uh, forgive me if I'm <laughs> repeating myself, but um, I am a, uh, uh, one of those people who believes that Breaking Bad is one of the greatest achievements in the history of civilization. I think it's really great, great drama. Um, so what's the idea that drives it? Uh, a, uh, a high school chemistry teacher um, gets a cancer diagnosis, and so he decides to go into the uh, methamphetamine trade um, with an incorrigible former student of his, a criminal, uh, you know, to sell drugs to support his family. That is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Many, many uh, companies shot that down. Um, and yet it is this triumphant uh, achievement, 62 hours uh, of a TV series, every frame of which uh, is engaging and, and, and captivating and um, uh, involving. And, and uh, the, uh, uh, so how did that happen? And the answer is they told a good story. It's where the story, uh, it's really all about story. That's what we believe at UCLA. That's, that's what I believe. A few years, I mean, imagine if somebody came up to you and, and said, hey, I have an idea for a movie. Uh, this guy stutters, uh, but he has to give a speech, so he hires a speech therapist. They work on the speech, and he gives the speech at the end of the movie. If somebody told you that that's going to win the Oscar for best picture and best screenplay, you figure uh, they're crazy. And yet that is, of course, uh, the King's speech. And um, again, I think it just demonstrates the uh, uh, the value of story and the valuelessness of ideas. And I think that very young people are more into ideas. They have great ideas. I like to say when you have a great idea, if you have a really, really great idea for a, a screenplay, that's all you've got. I mean, what remains after that? Everything. The, the uh, characters have to be invented. The dialogue they speak has to be created. It has to be punchy and peppy and provocative. Um, and pungent, I'm just getting into peas now, um, and poetic, and it has to be worth listening to all for itself just because there's something kind of charming about it. But beyond that, it can't be just for itself. It also has to uh, advance the story in a palpable, measurable, identifiable way, likewise expand the audience's appreciation of the characters. It takes time. Uh, for me to give you an idea about a movie, I can you know it takes a, a handful of seconds to walk you through the story of the movie. It takes the length of the movie a couple of hours, so that's where the value is. There is a huge business, maybe an overly huge business, in teaching screenplay structure, a three-act structure, a five-act structure, you know. And, and, and there are, there are I, I, know, I know a fair share of screenwriting gurus who are at each other's throats all the time about which structure is the structure. And I'm not saying there's not a structure. I would be in big trouble if I said there wasn't a structure and that a story didn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But this reliance, the, 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 this absolute like, like need to follow any structure map that's out there. And if, you're, and if you don't have a turning point on page 30, you haven't done it right. 
or if you're on step five of 22 steps and you're on the wrong step, you haven't done it right, or any of this stuff, it's not true. This structure business, it's a business. And I can't, I, and, and you need a diagram to teach structure and, 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 and you sell a diagram. And it's very, it's, it's, it's very hard to, 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 to say I have the best diagram unless you have a diagram, right? I mean, you need a diagram to sell a diagram. I told you earlier about my diagram that ends on page 60 with someone hanging themselves. <laughs> it's an emotional diagram. It goes like this, it's like page one. Oh God, I can do this, this is gonna be great. This is best story ever. Page 10, oh my God, I can really do this. Everyone was wrong about me. My parents can go F themselves. I'm a writer, <laughs> on and on emotional. And then like about page 20, you go, oh God, this is really getting hard. And it starts and the graph starts going down and down. And then again, you get to page 60 and like, I'll never finish this. You hang yourself. It's my structure, okay? It's an emotional structure. Uh, it's an emotional diagram. But... Oh, wait, sorry to interrupt, but what happens after the, the hanging man diagram? Oh, well, you, you, you go into despair okay. for a while. You put yourself to bed. Then you wake up and you start again. And it has a happy ending. Oh, good. And at the ending, there's big bags of money, all the sex you ever wanted, power. The, you know, <laughs> you win, right? Uh, uh, but it's, it, it, it's, it's obviously tongue-in-cheek and, and to make a point. But, but, the, but the real point of it is, is that have characters who you believe in and you believe that you can write them and that they are in some sense writing you, that they're coming out of a place of truth for you. Put them in the tightest, most impossible situation you can imagine and get them out of it. And know that you have probably need to do it if you're writing a screenplay in 100 to 120 minutes and let the story flow. And there will be natural points uh, within you doing that where you will feel that the story needs to go faster, needs to go slower, uh, that, that, that there needs to be more drama, there needs to be a moment of rest. All of these things that structure teaches you, and again, I'm not saying there isn't a structure, but those structure diagrams, they can be an, an, an uh, assist you or they can be a cage. Hmm. They can be an absolute cage and they can trap you. And uh, there is, if you believe that, you, that you're a writer, you have a natural storytelling gift that you need to honor, that you need to respect or don't be a writer. I mean, don't, don't, don't think that you can tell a story if you don't feel that you have a natural storytelling gift and you can't tell when things are going too slowly or things are going too fast and just let it flow and then go back and see if it's structured right. But this is another thing that will stop people dead in their tracks over and over again is your first act is too long. Who cares? Who cares? You'll figure that out if writing is rewriting in the rewrite. And, and, and watch a lot of movies, read a lot of books. I, I'm now, because of, 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 of constraints of time sometime, I'm a podcast junkie. 
I hear the most brilliant stories in podcasts and stories that have a natural beginning, a middle, and an end because they're true. Just embrace all of that. Embrace the movies that you love. Take them to your heart. And if you're a storyteller, the story will emerge and it will emerge with a structure. The biggest lesson about writing is get up and do it. You know, is like, it is a job. You know, I, I'm the kind of guy that I like uh, a glass of wine. You know, I like some music going. That's very romantic, and I'm sure Hemingway would be very proud, but like, that's really not how you get a script done or how you write uh, that many scripts. And I, I am always writing. Uh, so it's like, you gotta get up, you gotta spend time with your coffee, you gotta look at it. And sometimes it's just sitting there, not being able to write anything that gets you two days later to where you are, where you can you know, answer the question and put it on paper. Everybody says you have to write and read every day because it's true. Um, if you're, if you're writing every day, you know, the next day you're going to, you're going to write a little better than you did the day before. And in four years, you're going to be a much better writer than you were four years ago. And I think a lot of writers, you're waiting to, for the world to give you permission to pursue your craft. And you just need to, you need to give yourself that permission. You need to show up and say, okay, I'm going to do this. And I might not be very good right now, or, um, you know, maybe I am great and I don't know it yet. You won't know either way unless you put yourself out there. And sitting down every day, whether that's, you know, for an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, somewhere in between, um, the timing doesn't matter. And it really doesn't even matter, you know, if you're writing a thousand words or if you're writing 50. The important thing is that you're writing.